2: From
5: Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Dolores,
0: Jordan, Antonio,
6: Eddie,
2: and the Tom Sumner Program.
1: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
6: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, your uh, host, and uh, we got a good show in store today. Um, Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to have back-to-back interviews about a couple of new books from National Geographic. Um, We start with um, Allison Johnson, author of uh, A Thousand Perfect Weekends. And uh, you'll, you'll never get them all in no matter how long your bucket list is, but uh, there's some great ones to pick from. And then we'll talk to National Geographic editor Susan Goldberg about um, a National Geographic book that looks at the 21st century in photographs. In the middle of our uh, three-hour tour, uh, the second hour, Sidney Halpern will join us to talk about uh, a new book called Dangerous Medicine that offers revelations into America's 30-year program of infecting people with hepatitis and its implications for research aimed at controlling COVID-19. But uh, we're going to start out uh, this hour talking about news and what's become of it with journalist uh, Unger Sargan. She's written a book called Bad News and uh, we're going to talk about that but first we have a chance to squeeze in a little Christmas music and I always like to play Christmas music this time of year And my Christmas music is better than everybody else's because as you've heard me say it's local and and this this song we're going to squeeze in before we go to uh, my conversation with Bacha um is uh interesting because it it comes from Todd Gilbert and um, he was on the show oh god it's been some time in the last few months and he was we were talking about the impact of uh covid19 and the quarantines on music makers and he's one of the few people who really used the time he finished up a couple of albums that he'd been working on and did a christmas album so this uh piece of music comes from uh I think the album that Todd did for Christmas is called Christmas for Everyone. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I'm sure you'll recognize uh, the song. It's a cover song from from uh, and and it's it's become a classic.
5: Ooh, Merry Christmas, Saint-Aid. Christmas Christmas, Ooh, stack- Merry Christmas, Saint Nick. Comes this time. Ooh, Merry Christmas, Saints Nick. Comes this time.
6: Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My, uh, my guest this hour is, uh, let, me, let me make sure I get this right. She is the uh, deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author of a new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And her name is Unger Sargon and she joins me by phone. Batya, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's really such an honor to be talking to you and to be talking to the people of Flint.
6: <laughs> well, you know, it's. Uh, this is one of my, my favorite topics because I'm old enough to remember Walter Cronkite. Not quite old mm-hmm. enough to remember Edward R. Murrow, but, um,
5: mm-hmm.
6: but, but there's certainly been a shift. During the last half of the last century, and even more so into the into the uh, the new millennium and I, and I want to talk to you about that but but first, c- taking right out of the title, "What is woke media?"
0: I'm so glad you asked that um- <laughs> So I get a lot of validation for my thesis from two sources. The first is journalists like you who have noticed a huge sociological shift in who journalists are, people who can remember when journalism was a blue-collar trade, you know, a working-class job, and 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 have seen that shift, witnessed that shift to where it's part of really the American elites today. You know, in order to become a journalist today, you really have to come from money and have a very, very, very um, you know, high status degree. So that's the first source of, of validation I get. The second is from working class Americans who are people of color, black Americans, Latino Americans, who look at the way race is discussed in the mainstream media and just do not recognize their values at all. So the word woke originated as black slang slang for staying aware of and awake to the ways in which the state uh america was still uh systemically racist and of course that's an extremely important thing to do when i use the word woke media what i'm talking about is a phenomenon that sociologists have noticed that started around five six seven years ago to where white liberals have become more radical and more extreme in their views on race than black and Latino Americans. That's how I use the word woke um, to describe a kind of obsession and moral panic around race that white liberals are perpetuating, that the media is perpetuating, which is made up increasingly of affluent, highly, highly educated white liberals. And I wanted to understand why that was happening. And, and what I found was that these two phenomena are related. The status revolution that happened among journalists from blue-collar trade to highly, highly educated, elite, affluent profession is the reason that the media now talks about race in a way that is so alienating to black and Latino Americans.
6: And, and another thing that's that's come up in just the last decade or so is um, the concept of fake news. Uh, now, your book is called Bad News. <laughs> What's the difference between bad news, good news, and
0: fake news? That's such a great question, Tom. Um, you know, President Trump used to call the media, you know, the enemy of the people, and you're fake news, and this is fake news, and that's fake news. Um, you know, unfortunately, in some ways he was right, so we just saw the Steele dossier implode, right? So the whole Russia gate, the whole, um, you know, obsession with this idea that Trump was colluding with Russia started with, you know, a series of documents that was published by BuzzFeed that claimed to show that the Russians had compromising information on Donald Trump. And, you know, the man at the head of that was just arrested for lying to the FBI, you know, the whole, that whole story fell apart, but it was covered so voraciously by the news. So I think in many cases he was right that there was really no there there to what they were reporting. That's fake news is when the media gets their hands on something that's too delicious to fact check, right? It's, it confi- confirms their biases so much, they so want it to be true, that they publish it, you know, without it even being the case. To me, bad news is, is sort of the woke version of that to where you take every story and you make it about white supremacy, you make it about race, whether or not that is the case in an attempt to re-racialize American life. And, and I think that that's just disastrous. It, it's like I said, it's extremely alien to, to, to um, minorities and to, to people of color, to the way they see themselves and they see their agenda. But it's also, um, I believe, a way of sort of defending the status quo by, by really distracting us from the real divide in America, which is about class, which is about income inequality. And you just can't get people to talk about that stuff in the same way and with the same vigor um, as they talk about race at a time when Americans are, you know, so united about how evil racism is and so united in their disgust of white supremacy. The words white privilege, white supremacy have absolutely skyrocketed, you know, in the mainstream liberal media, even as these phenomena are, thank God, finally sort of in our rearview mirror. Of course, there are still areas that we need to work on, police brutality, for example, but Republicans are also agitating for police reform now, right? So there's just no longer that divide anymore. And I argue, I I tried to figure out why is it that when we're no longer divided on these issues, you have Republicans calling for police reform, Republicans releasing people from prison, saying mass incarceration is is unchristian, right? How come we are now we still believe that we're so divided about issues like race? And, I, you know, again, I argue that this is very much about the status revolution among journalists, that as journalists became part of the American elite, they abandoned the working class of all races.
6: More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. <music> Hey, actually, we have a little schedule change. Uh, Originally scheduled for uh, this first hour was foreign affairs expert Tim Marshall talking about his uh, book, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. And we're going to talk with Tim coming up after this break. The rest of the interview, which is in three parts with uh, Batya from Newsweek, will air next tuesday as originally scheduled but uh, we're going to take a short break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise if uh, they are wfov 92.1 lp fm our voices radio in flint um, if you're streaming us at Tom Sumner com, we have some messages as well and then uh, we'll be back with uh foreign affairs expert Tim Marshall so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse there's lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead
7: hello out there everybody it's me Tigger ti double that spells Tigger and don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy
0: hoo. <laughs>
2: From
5: Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica.
6: And the Tom Sumner Program. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back everybody. Uh, my next guest joins me by phone to talk about uh, a new book called The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. The author is um, foreign affairs expert Tim Marshall. As I mentioned, he joins me by phone. Hi Tim, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you very much for the invitation.
6: Um, let, me, let me ask you something about global maps. How much of of the maps that that identify various countries around the world are determined by geography, mountains, streams, seas, and so on? And how much is politics?
7: Oh, it's a good mix, though, isn't it? I mean, if you look at Africa, and then you look at all those straight lines that the colonialists drew, well, that's not a natural border. So most of the the African countries, you know, it, it is not fixed by the fact that the river delineates the, 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 the divide. And that's one of the problems of Africa. You know, they've lumped lots of people in together and then said, right, get on with it. Um, <laughs> others, I, I, I no, but they did, you know. that I mean, always said, works so well, seven, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, they said to 17 different nations, right, you're all one state now, and expect them to uh, to make a fist of it, you know. it's Anyway, um, there are others that are natural. I mean, the U.K., <laughs> Uh, being an island japan obviously an, uh, an island um but others know i mean it, look look at your own country uh, there is a, a fairly natural delineation now of the rio grande but what is the natural divide between you and canada it's not a natural divide that's a political one um and then, and even the united the, uh, the contiguous united states i mean you know you you could have had 50 different countries or you could have had seven or eight. You know, it could have been the eastern seaboard. And then when you get over the Appalachians, it's a different
6: country. So
7: all those, all those things are political. So I don't have the actual stats. There's 193 countries. I, I wasn't trying to put you yes. on the
6: spot, Tim. I just I just <laughs> wanted to point out and, and sort of underscore yeah, yeah. the idea that, you know, sometimes we just make up the lines and sometimes the lines... Yeah. Are just built in by land.
7: Yeah, it's organic, though, isn't it? It grows. Many of them it grows organically. I'll give you an example. Spain. On one side of them, they got a lot of water. Then north, they have a huge mountain range, the Pyrenees. To their left, they have uh, the river that separates them from Portugal. And then at the bottom, there's more sea. But of course, it wasn't always like that. You know, it was a bunch of tribes grew up, got together. Uh, megatribes married into megatribes, and eventually you get this huge tribe within those natural geographic borders. That's how it's worked in a lot of places.
6: Now, in your book um, that uh, came out November 2nd, The Power of Geography, 10 mm-hmm. Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World, how much of an impact does geography have on the politics going forward? I'm not a
7: determinist. Uh, people get cross with determinists because uh, they think it gives no agency to what humans can and can't do. But I do argue, as I argued in a previous book, that we are prisoners of geography. It does constrain us, or indeed, there are, the limits that we have are within geography. So, my approach is, if you want to study a country, most people start with its history. I think that's wrong. I think you start with its geography. You look at in what directions its rivers flow, where are its natural borders, what does it contain within it that helps you or hinders you. I mean, uh, you guys have got wind power, wave power, solar power, but you've also got coal and oil and gas. You know, you're one of the prime real estate parts of the entire planet. Um, So only then, once you've looked at that geographic frame then pile on the history on top of it and you'll find the history becomes a lot easier to understand then finally you put the current affairs on and i think that one flows to the other flows to the other and they're all interrelated
6: but what's happening now uh like you know we i i remember the the berlin wall coming down i remember Mm. uh the, the so-called, well, it, it was in fact the fall of the, the Soviet Union, and yeah. a lot of maps changed in, you know, those activities. Um, what What is happening with with Russia and and the parts of the the map that are or or were part of the Soviet Union, and and of yeah. course I'm thinking about you know this this ongoing encroachment on Ukraine.
7: Yeah, and your president is talking to the Russian president about it today because you know I, it may not be, but it it could be war. Um, probably not, but you never know. I, I think what's happening is that the old geographic map of rivers and mountains and cultures which were formed by them. The Ukrainian people now see themselves as, you know, they're not Russian. Uh, and, and you can talk about other areas, whether it's Georgia or Azerbaijan and Armenia that fought a war last year. What has happened is that once that permafrost of the Cold War melted up through uh, the maps became the old outlines, which, which the Soviets had sort of, you know, sort of a mass, massive colonialism, if you like, You know, right, we're all Soviets now. I mean, they never were. They were still Kazakhs and Tajiks and Ukrainians and Poles. And so when that permafrost melts,
6: there it goes again. Going forward, how much do the maps determine... And and I keep asking you these quantitative questions, which I don't mean to do. <laughs> let me let me ch- rephrase that too. How significant? No, I'm liking them. How how is it significant that the U.S. is is maybe shifting its interests from the Middle East to Asia? Well, this is still geography. Um, I mean, it's
7: geopolitics uh, and, and international relations, but you can trace geography through it. Like I said, you know, I don't think that everything is dependent upon geography. There are great leaders, there are peoples, there are ideas, etc. There's climate, there's all sorts of things. But, but one, of, one of the reasons that the Americans have pivoted is because, yes, they realize that China is going to be perhaps an equal, and if not the second power in this century, and they need to focus on it. But here's the thing, they can focus on it because they don't need to focus as much and increasingly so as the decades go past on the Middle East, for example. In the Middle East, you had to pay complete and full attention in the 20th century because of the oil and the gas. In the 21st century, when you become more or less self-sufficient in energy because of your energy supplies, including shale, well, now you, you don't need to put all your assets in that part of the world. And so you pivot away. And then the knock-on effect comes in places like Saudi Arabia. They're thinking, oh, hell, heck, if no one's going to buy our stuff, what are we going to do? And so they are now beginning to change their economy. You know, it's a knock-on effect. But the root cause is partially geography.
6: Now, the, the book that uh, that you've written, Tim, The Power of Geography, Uh, 10 maps that reveal the future of our world. What are some of those maps, and and what are they revealing about the -hmm. the future?
7: Okay. Um, I mean, I guess we don't have time to go through all 10, so let me give you... uh, I'm trying to pick my best. Uh, Let me give you three. Let's start with, with, with Australia. Because of Australia's geography, massive continent... 8,000 miles in one direction to, to Africa and those supply chains and trade routes, 12,000 miles across to you guys and the supply chains, and 12 uh, the trade routes. You need a massive navy. Hey, they can't have a massive navy. They haven't got a massive population. They haven't got a massive population because there's no water except on, on, on the, uh, the, the right-hand side of the map where just about everybody lives there. So you can't grow a big Navy. So you need a friend. Well, that used to be the the British. Come 1941, the British were a bit busy. The Japanese are about to invade Australia. Australia has to make a choice. It ditches the UK. It goes with America. So that was determined partially by geography. Now, to bring it up to date, they've just made their bet for the 21st century, and their bet is America, because now they feel threatened from the same direction, but from China. They have a choice to make. They can edge towards the Chinese and make cozy with them. Or, given that they're a dictatorial one-party communist state, they can stick with their old allies. They're sticking with you. They signed this recent AUKUS deal, the submarine deal with America. They clearly made their bet. And that bet is mostly made, no, it's rooted in geography, and then things like culture, history, language, and values kick in as well. There's one. You got time for two more?
6: Yeah, absolutely.
7: (laughs) <laughs> okay let's have a think i'm just looking at a map of the world i mean there's a history on greece there's a history on turkey A chapter on turkey uh, ethiopia um ethiopia horn of africa it's the dominant power now bear in mind that everything is connected you know a lot of people think that international relations is is, is sort of scary and, and difficult to understand i don't think it's any more difficult to understand than baseball which is quite difficult but, you know, when you know the rules, things fall into place. Now, the Americans have got a base in Djibouti next to uh, Ethiopia. They do not want instability down there. They want the Red Sea to be remain open for the international sea lanes and the traffic. But Ethiopia is in the midst of a civil war, and it could spread and spill across borders, and the whole of the Horn of Africa uh, could go up in flames, which will affect world trade. Not good. Um, but Ethiopia, conversely, if it can stabilize, is currently just dammed the Blue Nile with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. First time in ever that the Blue Nile has been dammed in this way. And this means that Ethiopia will be able to provide free electricity to every house in Ethiopia and transform people's lives. That's a good thing. Knock on effect you go downstream, and there's Egypt. No Nile. No Egypt. So Egypt has actually threatened war with Ethiopia, that if they ever dare to turn the tap off, uh, that's going to spark a war. Now, there's no sign of that happening, but countries don't act for what they think is going to happen in the next few years. They're planning way ahead. And in the event of a massive drought, if, if climate modeling is correct, that danger's there. Last one. Space. Now, you might wonder, what is that doing in a geography? It's not a (laughs) geography book. It's a geography. Geography, history, history, current affairs book. Space. My argument is that it's not sci-fi or the future anymore. It's here and now. There's an arms race up there. There's a commercial race going on up there. And we need to conceptualize space as having a border with Earth. And we need to conceptualize that border as having choke points. Uh, strong points weak points for example if you guys and I'm not saying you're going to but if you had absolute dominance in low earth orbit you would control all of the satellites which means you can turn anybody's traffic lights on in rush hour in any city in the world or you can turn them off you can see where all the ships are going you can see where people are moving you would have absolute dominance now you're not trying to do that but you're gonna make sure that nobody else has dominance especially when it comes to killer satellites and things like that. And these choke points, soon we're going to be refueling our spacecraft in the low Earth orbit. Well, supposing you controlled it, you, like if you controlled access to the Strait of Hormuz where the oil and gas comes out or the Suez Canal, if you control that, you control who travels to space and who doesn't travel to space. So I wanted to put that in as the last chapter to get it used to, Space as a geographic area not just as that you know out there place
6: now I read somewhere that there were already in existence some treaties with regard to space no
7: well hang on yeah you, Tommy, you're right the treaties exist they were written in the 1960s as the outer space treaty and the moon treaty and they're not bad they're way out of date don't get me wrong, I mean, there's nothing in them about killer satellites because there were no killer satellites and there's nothing in them, I don't think about laser uh, weapons because they didn't exist and, and, and projection, you know, they're out of date, but at the time they were okay. The problem Tom, comes that they were signed by some countries, but they weren't ratified. Your Congress didn't ratify it, for example. So if you don't ratify the treaty, it has no international uh, underpinning, it has no international legality. And nobody signed them. So not only is the text out of date, but they're not legally binding anyway. And so what we've now got is this arms race in space with people building killer satellites, which would be devastating because you do not want all that debris rolling around in the satellite belt. People have already signed agreements to have so-called spheres of influence on the moon. Well, that's not going to go very well. And yet we have no legal treaties trying to uh, moderate our behavior or putting the boundaries in what we can and can't do. I, I think it's vital that, that they begin work. You know, we, we've got to get the START treaty, the nuclear treaties, all, all of the, the artificial intelligence treaties, cyber treaties, they all have to be done as well, but nobody seems to be even close to looking at new binding up-to-date treaties for space.
6: Well, and that's that's kind of why I wanted to Bring it up, um, Tim, because my, my overreaching question or overarching question, rather, is um, if we wanted to pick up from where they left off in the 60s and, and develop mm. some treaties or mark out some policies and procedures with regard to space, who would take it up? Well, if the
7: Americans and Chinese pioneered it and got the Russians on board, pretty much everybody else, maybe not New North Korea, but pretty much everybody else would fall into line because everyone knows we need them. And so, okay, listen, the Russians last year, and maybe they've done it again, tested a killer satellite up in space. They, some doors, it's straight out of an Austin Powers film. The doors opened and one satellite. They fired something at one of their small satellites and blew it up. Hadn't happened before, first time, you know. And we know the history of mankind. I mean, in, uh, in talks I give, I sometimes say, you know, fifty thousand years ago, a guy ran out of a cave with a brand new shiny spear, and everybody else said, "I want one of those spears." Yeah, you know, and we <laughs> haven't changed so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's sad. It's a sad reflection on us, but you know, it's true. But hey, I'm pretty sanguine about these things. Twas, towards ever thus. So, but if if you could get the Chinese, the Americans, and the Russians to agree, okay, we agree a test ban. On weapons in space, everybody else would fall into to line. I mean, you could even say no offensive weapons, and then they would have defensive, but that wouldn't be brilliant. But you know, there there is a starting point, and it's now, and there is a a real need for it. And the the, the arms race in space is the most important. But then you need to go on from that with rules about you know spheres of influence. The Moon Treaty, for example. Stipulates explicitly no individual or country or corporation can claim the territorial part of space. But it's not worth the paper it wasn't ever signed on, if you know what I mean. Right, right. The Chinese have already. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese have parked um, a big satellite on the far side of the moon, looking directly down at the bit that they intend to build a moon base on. The Americans, the Brits, the Japanese, and, and nine others have signed the Artemis Accords. When they have agreed to have, they didn't word its spheres of influence, but uh, that's essentially what it means. And, and I write in the book, so fine, so Japan has landed and got its spades and shovels out to try and get the you know, minerals out of the ground. And the Russians land next to them, and the Japanese say, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> we have the Artemis Treaty, which they weren't invited to sign. On what basis are they going to say uh, Oh, okay. We'll go away then. Yeah, we, we need these, and we need to, as I said, conceptually, we need to start thinking of space as a geographic area and deal with it the way we have tried to deal uh, with with our deals uh, down here on Earth.
6: Who would take the lead on that? I mean, would it, would it necessarily fall to the U.S. or is there a desk for that at the United Nations? <laughs> Oh, there's a desk, <laughs>
7: there's a desk for everything at the United Nations, <laughs> uh, they just don't, but don't ever, Tom, don't ever try and ring it at the weekends. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just not a 27, 24-7 operation. Anyway, um, sure, the Americans could take the lead, but I mean, look at something like artificial intelligence. The 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 Chinese are well aware and openly talk about the dangers of artificial intelligence being in charge of weapons. Now, there is, this has already happened. Um, there are already drones, and I think the Turks have used this technology uh, in Libya. The drones, I think using Chinese artificial intelligence, are given the power of face recognition. And then, when they find the face that they're looking for, they do not ask for permission. The drone itself, the AI on it, takes the decision and fires at the person. Now everyone realizes that could get pretty messy if you escalate from a drone to a nuclear weapon. So the Chinese are, you know, everyone's aware of these dangers. So I guess it just takes, you know, impetus at a high level, you know, and and, and we say in my world of um, geopolitics bandwidth, you know, do the governments have the bandwidth when they're focusing on what's happening in Ukraine, uh, the South China Sea, do they have the bandwidth to be looking ahead in not, not, not the here and now, but looking ahead several years and starting the work. Um, that's often a challenge, especially when you're firefighting all the time.
6: Well, and we've done such a good job with climate change. Yeah. Well, we're <laughs> getting there slowly. <laughs> Do you think we are slowly? Yes, I do actually, Tom. As, um, as you know, we actually, as we make great. some of these, as we take some of these steps forward, is that is that pushing the timeline back enough that you know we we can continue no, to work yeah, on well, this? Well,
7: a couple of things. One, I, sometimes I give talks here uh, in, in the UK, and I, sometimes I open with, you know, I spent. 30 years spreading doom and de- despondency around the globe. So I don't see why I should change tonight.
5: <laughs> and then I spread doom and
7: despondency. But I always end by saying how optimistic I am about life and the planet and, and, and humans. Because, you know, if you look at the last 400 years, with some horrible dips, the trajectory is mostly upwards. And that's for most of the world. You know, uh, ed- education levels, reading and writing, disease immuni- immunization, um, Death in childbirth, all sorts of things. It's positive. Now, when it comes to climate change, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a cynic on that. I I don't think we will take the drastic measures required until the very last minute, and I don't think it's one minute to midnight yet. The recent Glasgow um, uh, forum, the 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 climate change forum, it simply kept this 1.5 degree target on on life support it didn't make any advances so we are still going i I just think that as things get worse and again i'm going on scientific modeling you know i don't you know i'm no expert on this but if going on what the modeling says things will get worse as they progressively get worse we will enact more and more laws here's you know pulling out of thin air give it 10 years and i sorry which town which 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 town you in in that beautiful state of yours flint
6: Flint, Flint right okay I'm, 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 yeah I'm, uh, tim um, tim i i hate to, I hate to interrupt, but I have a break coming up here in about thirty seconds. Okay. Can you stick around and talk some hey more? I can
7: do this in, no, I can do it, I can do it in thirty seconds and then stick around some more. I'm predicting in ten years' time, they'll say to you, if you want to drive into Flint Center, there needs to be four of you in the car
6: interesting um. My guest is uh, foreign affairs expert Tim Marshall. The book is called The Power of Geography. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Tim. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse.
2: Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Alliance, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash covidvaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Or call the Foot River Watershed Coalition at 810 767 6490
4: The Tom Sumner Program. Hey,
7: this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom
4: Sumner Program.
6: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, my conversation with... Uh, foreign affairs expert, Tim Marshall, who has uh, joined me by phone. Tim, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you Thank sit you. through all that.
7: No, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Public service uh, advertising, it's good.
6: Um, Tim, now before the break we were talking a little bit about space and considering, it, as, as weird as it sounds, the geography of space. But um, You know, one thing I wanted to make sure, and I asked you to stick around so we could do this because I always ask guests where listeners can find out more about what we're talking about. And I fear a lot of people here in the States are are like me when as soon as you say geography, all of a sudden we get a little uncomfortable. (laughs) We're not particularly good at geography. Um, But uh, where can people find out more about what we've been talking about. Do you have a website? Uh,
7: I do, but it's more of a landing site for contact. Um, I, I have a Twitter handle, which is um, at itwittius. This is a play on um, the <laughs> I-Claudius, uh, who was a Roman Empire. So it's I-T-W-I-T-I-U-S, itwittius. Um, although I have, have to warn you, about a third of it is given over to the um, Ruminations upon my football team, Leeds United. So, but, you know, I've got, I've got a few books out. I mean, if you look up to Martial Power of Geography, you're going to find Prisoners of Geography, Age of Walls, uh, you know, and I, I, most of the books I deal in, in this sort of thing. And so, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to say that.
6: How did you get so interested in, in uh, geography? Was it your time. Yeah. Uh, as a journalist and and working yeah, from all yeah. the countries that you've well, been assigned to, it, it
7: is it is, but it's also the nexus of geography with history and current affairs that, that just really got me. I mean, I, you know, I was a bit of a nerd as a kid. I, I left school at sixteen, um, but but despite that, you know, I had an abiding interest in in the world. And I remember being just ooh, nine years old and watching the funeral of Martin Luther King. You know, and even as a nine-year-old being struck by this, this uh, you know, oh, this is something important. This is something I want to know more about. Um, sorry, but yes, yeah, come, come to your point. Yes, I learned early on in the Bosnian War, which I was covering, how important it was to understand the topography uh, of, of where the different factions were and why they were trying to take, you know, town X. You know, we often say, oh, you know, in conflict reporting, oh, they're trying to take this. But we don't actually say... Why? Um, so I learned very early on this this connection, this deep connection uh, between what they were doing and why they were doing it was connected to the geography of the region. And of course, it's not all all conflict. You know, it's it's um, like I said, this dam in Ethiopia. It, you know, how much it, it, or or why do the Australians live where they live? Eighty-five percent of them cling to the, the coastline on one corner of, of the continent, and it's because. Pretty much, that's the only place there's any water. So the more I got into it, the more I realized this is a really great way of explaining the world um, and simultaneously explaining uh, history, history, and current affairs. I mean, your country, I mean, I, I, I assume you know this, but when you say to people the absolute basics, once you reached your second coast, the Pacific, you became the only country in the world to this day that can project power simultaneously into two oceans. And, you know, that's that's an awful lot of things flow from that when you say that to your north, you have a friendly neighbor that even if it wasn't friendly, hasn't grown the population capable of threatening you. And to the south, you have a friendly neighbor, which probably wouldn't, couldn't be in a position anyway. So you are absolutely made. You're one of the very few countries in the world that doesn't look around 360 degrees and think, hmm, got to keep an eye on that.
6: <laughs> That's true. Well, Tim, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. Thank and, you. Um, keep up the good work. Thank
7: you. And uh,
6: you sound to be Tom a gentleman. So I thank you for your time. (laughs) Take care, Tim.
7: Cheers. Bye now. Bye-bye.
6: That was uh, Tim Marshall. He uh, is a former BBC journalist and uh, a leading authority on foreign affairs. The new book is uh, The Power of Geography, Ten Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
5: How much fun it's gonna be Wish you a merry Christmas from a dumb shore.
3: This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season, and you've probably been told there's no room at the inn. Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across the desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger Six. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger Six reminding you there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. We
5: wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sonder
2: We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on. Come on, get out of here.